This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So what have you been up to this week? Oh, do you know what? I've been doing something really fun, Robert. I do a, a like a comedy panel show for Radio 4 called The Ultimate Choice. And I've been recording that this week up in Newcastle. I've heard it. It is. It's a fun show. Yeah. It's that kind of, would you rather? Would you rather have a gorilla for a flatmate or a heron? Those are the kind of big questions heron. we ask. I <laughs> love herons. <laughs> would you? Yeah. I don't need to come on the show now. You know what? You know my preference. <laughs> you might. Your mind might change though when you hear from our experts because we have genuine experts on it as well and then comedians and a studio audience who all discuss this and it's really good fun so I've been doing that what about you so I've been preparing for the launch of my second published book this autumn which is a non-fiction book called bust another book already you can't say already in that surprise tone I sent you a pdf of it in the the hope that you'd endorse it I've noticed that the endorsement hasn't turned up yet but anyway uh yeah so that comes out uh, tomorrow and it's about the sort of economic social democratic fractures in britain and the west and how we mend britain and the west and i know there's a big chapter on it about artificial intelligence which is one of our topics today isn't it we're going to be talking about whether ai can transform our economy i think there's no doubt about that but why are politicians not constantly talking about AI. That's one of the questions we'll be asking today. What else are we doing? So it's a big show of big issues. We will be looking at a mega deal in the oil industry. And the big question there is that if oil and gas are on the way out to save the planet, why are the oil giants still buying up assets, paying top dollar for it? You know, why is the oil price still? rising, you know, are they in effect telling us that we're going to be using oil and gas for way longer than we expect or indeed is healthy for the planet? And then we've got 
an issue that you've identified that I think is absolutely gripping. So tell us about that. Yeah, this is um, how the Japanese deal with obesity. It's fascinating this. They basically monitor the weight of employees over the age of 40. So I want to talk a bit about that, what impacts it's having and whether this method they use would work in the UK. We have a big obesity problem, which affects businesses, the economy, as well as obviously individual health. So a huge issue. But should we kick off with, you know, because obviously it's on everybody's minds at the moment, artificial intelligence and what the impact will that, that'll have on our lives. Yes. I mean, there's so much going on, isn't there, in the world of AI at the moment, particularly, you know, from a business perspective. And, you know, in terms of big businesses out there, you hear a lot, don't you, about OpenAI, which owns ChatGBT. They're currently in talks to sell shares, which would value OpenAI at about 80 to $90 billion. And that is three times what it was valued to be worth six months ago, so in April. And it just shows you, doesn't it, how important AI is now. And it's I know it's something you've been talking about in your book. So you talk about this as a another industrial revolution, Robert, don't you, in the book? Yeah, it is, in my view, an industrial revolution that we are already in. And my view is that artificial intelligence, in particular, this latest very important iteration, generative artificial intelligence, typified by chat GPT, is what they call a general purpose technology. But what that means is it's the kind of technology that has an impact on almost all aspects of industry, services, and the economy. And in that sense, it's a bit like when our economy was electrified. It's very like the start of the internet and digital revolution. As I say, absolutely transformative. We should be clear here that there are essentially two kinds of AI, one that we've been living with for some time, which is the sort of narrower version. You know, those are the programs that, for example, help with surveillance or help with very specific tasks, probably the most important form of, in in an industrial sense, the slightly narrower AI at the moment is the AI that's being deployed by the likes of Tesla to create self-driving cars. But then there is the broader generative AI, which effectively replicates so much of sort of normal normal human thinking and activity. Both are having this extraordinary impact on our productivity, the amount that we produce per hour and per worker. And, you know, there are estimates that say, and I think these are reasonable, that over a three to four to five year period, deployed sensibly, and my goodness, we'll talk a bit about this, companies are already deploying it, it could increase the growth rate of an economy like ours very significantly, perhaps add a full percentage point to a growth rate at the moment. The underlying growth rate of the UK, unfortunately, we're growing slower than this at the moment, is about 1% a year. So you could see a doubling of the productive capacity of the underlying growth rate in the UK as a result of, of AI. But with massive dislocation to jobs along the way and lots of other risks. So like all industrial revolutions, and there isn't in a sense something unique about this, all industrial revolutions, the steam age, for example, and the introduction of mass production, that led to workers being poorer for years and years and years. It was a period of history known as Engels' pause. So in the short term, industrial revolutions can do damage. And so one of the big questions is, can we manage this revolution in a way that gives us the benefits without doing too much harm to millions of individual workers and employees. You're right, because McKinsey put out some stats on this, didn't they? They estimated it could increase the global economy by the size of 
UK's own GDP and, you know, as you say, improve our productivity and things. And it fascinates me just talking to businesses as well at this point about how they're using it. So I've got a friend who has a business. It's a pretty big business, employs uh, quite a few thousand people. And in it, their training arm has 16 to 18 year olds. So that part of the business is obviously has to be Ofsted reviewed and things. So for them, there's a big safeguarding element to their work with their trainees. And they're using AI in a way I hadn't thought of before, but to basically monitor these young people, to look at their online interactions, to look at how they're using social media, to assess for things like any mental health issues they might have, any other, like whether grooming might be happening. And so my mate was telling me this has been really powerful for them. So it's not just looking at, has someone written a message saying, oh, you know, I've not eaten today or whatever. It's AI looking at the language that's being used, preempting conversations that happen in between them. So they found from this AI that one of their members of staff, actually there was a couple of them, had eating disorders. So then they were able to use this to talk to them and help them through it. But it was through things like the mention of cotton wool and they, you know, that's a, a key thing in how people fill themselves up when they've got an eating disorder. So she was saying to me, AI for them has been really powerful in helping them actually look after their staff. And out of the hundreds of young people they have, they found quite a few issues with them that they wouldn't have been able to do without this ability to monitor them in a way. Now, there, obviously, there might be some people going, you shouldn't be monitoring them anyway. But from a business perspective, it's allowing her to be a better boss to them, yeah. which is really interesting. I'd never thought about a use like that. And to be clear, this is, you know, I was talking earlier about the distinction between a narrower AI service, which that is, versus these generative AI programs like Chat. GPT or Pi, which happens to be one that I am currently using quite a lot, which, as I say, replicate human activity. No, it, it is the wider one as well, because it will engage in conversations with them too. Oh, right. The distinction I'm trying to make here, these are, as you say, the, the example you gave is a really interesting and compelling one. But when it comes to the impact on jobs, for example, I mean, I want to give you an example of just quite how radical this is if you are, for example, in the customer service industry, these new generative programs will allow an 18 or 19-year-old who's just started to be as efficient as somebody who's been in the business for, say, 30 years. And that has a profound impact on everything from the costs of business, because it means that, for example, they can pay an 18, 19-year-old a starter wage and be reasonably confident that they will be as good as somebody who they've employed for a long time. But it also, and this is the bit that causes terrible social dislocation, it means that if you are that business, why would you pay a 40 or 50-year-old more money. And so it'll have this really quite serious flattening effect on pay structures. And therefore, at a time when, for example, living standards are under tremendous pressure, that is something that I think most people would regard as being a negative, certainly short to medium term impact. And it just shows you why it's really important for governments now to get ahead of the game and think about you know, what it's going to do. I mean, in some cases, people will lose their jobs. And governments need to think now about how do we put the training in place so that as people's jobs change, they can take on new productive roles. And lots of research showing that you know this will have a, a 
a negative impact on millions of people in the coming years. I was quite struck. Just overnight, there's a piece on the Bloomberg website where they interview the boss of Infosys, you know, the huge global software firm, the boss of Infosys in the UK, who basically says if governments don't grip this, there will be social unrest in the UK within three to five years is what he's saying. So what can a government do about it? Like we know that they're meeting next week, aren't we? There's a big conference at Bletchley Park. They can put in place training programs for people who are losing their jobs. We're rubbish at that though. Like they we, are rubbish uh, you at know, it. in terms yeah. of adult education, I've always go on about this. In terms of education should very much be something you do for your whole life, shouldn't it? We should always be thinking about transferable skills and learning new skills to take us into each different career or job opportunities because no one now spends their entire career in one company and often not one industry anymore either. So there should be more lifelong learning, shouldn't they? And you also have to change the welfare system. My view is that, for example, you have to give people who are losing their jobs decent money for long enough out of the welfare system so that they retrain, but with probably an end point to that welfare support to give them an incentive to make sure that they are taking advantage of the retraining opportunities that are on offer. What we can't go back to is what happened in the 1980s with Thatcher's dismantling of a lot of heavy industry, where those people were just essentially written off and never worked again, people who lost their jobs in steel and the coal mines. We can't allow this industrial revolution to write off a generation of people again. Of course you can't. Just on that point about the bigger concern about what AI might do to the world. I'm really fascinated by Anthropic, which is the kind of rival to OpenAI. And it was started a couple of years ago by a sister and brother called Dario and Daniela Amodi. And they were part of the senior team at OpenAI. And then they kind of, they've left OpenAI and said they didn't necessarily agree with things going on there. And so they've set up this Anthropic, which is about creating responsible AI and trying to build a constitutional AI that has human values. And he, particularly Dario, has said some really scary things about AI, hasn't he? He said, there's a one in four chance of it destroying us either by going rogue or by human abuse. And he's saying he thinks that what the governments need to do, what regulators need to do, is create these AI testing models so that they can test anything before it goes public. But then, and this is something I know you talk about in your book, you wonder, are there going to be regulators? Are there going to be government officials who have enough knowledge to actually be able to robustly test these things? Because there are so few people with science backgrounds. And I know, again, this is a big topic in your book. There's so few people in politics who've got science backgrounds who could ever understand this and test it robustly for people. There was almost nobody working for the civil service who had any understanding of machine learning whatsoever until incredibly recently. And in fact, Rishi Sunak has set up this task force and they have recruited, I think, about 25 people now who sort of do have experience in this industry and they're setting up a task force very much like the vaccines task force because they regard this as, as so important. Look, we're going to come back to this issue time and again because it is probably the biggest industrial business and economics issue of our age. I'm going to leave you, though, with one really startling statistic. So we've got these new chips that are being rolled out by NVIDIA who make the chips that underlie all the big generative AI services 
at the moment. And I am told, such as the exponential growth in the power of these services, that the next one that will be rolled out in the first half of next year will be up to a thousand times more powerful than the current service. And that means that the range of human activities that it can, in a sense, replicate will be off the charts. And it's at that point that people are really worried that even as soon as next year, these could be services that start to take independent decisions and that, in a sense, start to act in a self-controlling, autonomous way, which is the version of all of this that makes people very scared in case they decide to act in ways that is against the interests of humanity. I mean, they definitely won't need us anymore if they've got that, will they? You mean the podcast will be replaced by... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a couple of AI robots. <laughs> Look, however powerful, they're not going to replicate our banter. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Shall we move on to our next topic then? Because as you rightly said, when we started this episode, I have become a bit obsessed with what they're doing in Japan to try and stop obesity. And it's been in the news a bit recently. There was a, a big piece in the Times about this as well. So let me tell you what's going on. So this is called the Metabo Law. It was brought in in 2008 as a way to try and control their growing obesity in Japan. And this law means that all companies have to measure their employees' wastes every year. And it's their staff age between 40 and I think it's 75. And so they measure their wastes. They have to fall within these parameters. So men need to be under 33.5 inches. Women need to be under 35.5 inches. If you are over that number, when your boss or whoever at work is measuring your belly, you have to go on a weight loss course. That's funded by your employer. You get various support things put in place to help you. But if the company doesn't meet their threshold for people being the right weight size after all of this, you know, intervention of helping you, they will be fined. I mean, this is mind blowing, this idea, Robert. What do you think of it? Well, it sort of runs counter to every sort of British libertarian tradition, doesn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think what I would, you know, if ITV, well, okay. I mean, actually, we should be honest, of course, that you and I in broadcasting, we are subject to different standards. I get trolled all the time about my weight. Do you? God almighty, people are revolting. I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right. I was thinking back to when I was at the BBC. This hasn't actually happened at ITV, but there was a particular boss who, for some reason or other, took exception to a suit I was wearing and took me to one side. You know, And it's not quite the same thing as the health thing, but they do sort of care about how you look. Do you know that they used to come to me first, though, to get me to tell you? And I was like, no way, you can shove <laughs> off. I'm not telling him about his hair or his suit or anything else. Go and tell him yourself. Yeah, well, most... Mostly they didn't actually, but uh... no, they didn't. I know they were too scared. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's why I said it. It was like the times sometimes when you were doing a bulletin on the news, and they were like, "We need him to rap. We need him to rap." I'm like, "What do you want me to do? Go on there and pull him off?" <laughs> I was like, "Just let him crack on with it. That's you've employed him to be him. He's being him." So anyway, but yeah, back to weight. But I mean, it seems to be working though, what yeah. they're doing in Japan. Because if you compare their obesity rates, that's something like 4%, isn't it? Compared to, what is it, 26% in England. What do you think British companies would say though, if you know requirement was put on them to do this? Because I think it's not just the employees 
who I think would say this is an invasion of my right to live my life as I want. I mean, you know, I've been thinking quite a lot recently about the diversity, equity and inclusion agenda, which has become very important within businesses. This is the idea that you've got to take steps to make sure that your workforce is more representative of the community and and not just a bunch of white middle-aged men. But companies really struggled with that initially. You know, I think if British companies were told, you know, you've got now responsibility for the health of your workforce in the way that you've got to monitor it much more actively. I think lots would bulk up that, don't you think? Yeah, I think forcing people to do anything is obviously always a cause for concern. But I do think there is a lot more interest in corporate wellness now. So for example, there's a doctor who I've worked with in the past called Marudula Paw, and she set up a business called Peppy Health, which she set up primarily for women. So she'd worked in pharmaceuticals. She'd worked at McKinsey as well. And she was looking at why so many women who are menopausal end up leaving their jobs. So it's something like one in four women consider leaving their job because of their menopause and one in 10 actually do. So she set up this kind of platform, which companies can use to provide healthcare experts that women can access really easily. And wow, her business has absolutely flown now. So she's working with huge companies now providing this health platform and they've extended it much further. So on it now, you can get fertility help as well. Also, they look particularly at men's health now, which is wasn't the big thing she was going to do when, when she set it up. But presumably this is all voluntary though, isn't it? It is. But what I'm saying is, I mean, the company pays for this for them. So there's definitely a sense of companies thinking more about about how do we keep our skilled staff? How do we retain talent? And it's rational, isn't it? Not only from the point of view of the success of an individual company, and actually some businesses have known this for years. You were talking earlier about the company that uses AI to monitor the health of its young people, particularly the psychological health. I mean, years and years and years ago, there was a banker child of mine, a woman who worked at Goldman Sachs, who actually left because she was furious with the way that it sort of monitored. They had a, they were one of the early adopters of an electric card for getting food from staff canteens and staff machines. And they noticed that she wasn't buying any food because she preferred to go to prep. And, um, but they then started sending her messages saying, you know, we think you've got an eating disorder. She, so she, she just thought this is an invasion of my privacy. So she just went off and did other things. But Goldman, obviously, you know, one of those businesses that understood very early on, you know, health is a massive impact on the productivity of employees. And there are stats showing that for the economy as a whole, the loss to output is tens of billions of pounds in the UK alone. And obviously, we know that the cost to the NHS of treating people with illnesses that stem from obesity or related to obesity runs to billions. I mean, if you look at the stats on this, obesity costs the NHS £6 billion a year, and that is expected to rise by £10 billion by 2050. And there are so many other chronic health issues, aren't there, because of weight, you know, and Frontier economics say on this that the cost to the wider society because of staff absences for avoidable health issues, which are often linked to it, is something like £58 billion. So the Japanese approach, plainly, you know, if you could adopt something similar in the UK, would be 
not only good for individuals, but good for prosperity. Yes. Although, funnily enough, I was talking to my partner about this story last night because she was asking what we were talking about today. And I mentioned this Japanese one. And then she, who would absolutely hate the thought of anyone measuring any part of her, was like straight online going, yes, but they've got really high suicide rates in Japan and they work a lot harder. Like they're not as happy. I think they're not as happy. I saw, I guess you wonder where's the trade off in this? Yeah, they might not have obesity or the chronic health issues that come from it. But she was right in the sense that they do have a higher rate of suicide. And you wonder if the pressures of having to be this perfect person at work in every sense might be part of this. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and we talk about this a lot, you've got to be careful not to confuse correlation with cause. Yeah, true. So I just don't know enough about you know, the, the mental health issues in Japan to know whether this is at all related to the sort of paternalism that's enforced on companies. But looking at back at the UK, though, just in terms of what politicians are doing, there's that stat, isn't there, that since 1992, we've had 14 obesity strategies and 689 separate schemes. And yet obesity is continuing to rock it up. And just on that point, we were due to have, um, you know, new measures put in place to, in a sense, force healthier eating. You know, there were going to be restrictions on the kind of deals that big supermarkets could do, the sort of buy one, get one free kind of deals. There were going to be restrictions on certain kinds of advertising of unhealthy products. We've had sugar tax as well, didn't we, which seems to have worked a bit. But a lot of this stuff has been delayed because of the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got a government that basically took the view, this is a good thing, perhaps in theory, but not now. And the question is, there's always some reason you know, it won't necessarily be because of the living crisis next time, but every time there's an attempt by a government to put in place restrictions on what we can do to ourselves in an unhealthy way, there's always an argument why this is not the moment. But if you look at something like sugar tax, uh, that was brought in in 2018, wasn't it? This is on sugary drinks and you know, we saw a massive decline in, in terms of the amount of sugar in drinks after that because of this tax. And then there was a medical study done, and it was particularly looking at young people and uh, kids. And one study looking at 10 to 11-year-olds reckons, and this was a medical independent study separate to any government or manufacturing influence, said that it thinks it will have stopped 5,000 girls between 10 and 11 becoming obese because of the sugary drinks tax and the fact that, you know, there were so few options in terms of sugary drinks compared to what there were. So you do wonder if we just need to be a bit harsher. No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm basically, you and I agree on this. I do think that in the end, you've got to take a long-term view on this stuff and lives are being ruined as a result of obesity. If you compare the stats on obesity, particularly of children in the UK, compared to obesity in Japan, we are so much less healthy than Japan. Partly that's because of the nature of the Japanese diet anyway, irrespective of any government pressure with the Japanese diet, rice, uh, you know, raw fish and fish in general, you know, is intrinsically healthier than the kind of stuff we eat. But a paternalistic structure in which you try and create a framework in which people are sort of obliged to eat healthier and to live healthier lives. I think we have got to address this. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that, and this is a, always a really tough message for British people in particular, but you know, the harm that I do to myself by refusing 
to live in a healthy way does impose harm on other people in the sense that if in the end the costs to the health service of sorting out my problems rise and rise and rise, and if that's true in the case of millions of people, that depletes resources available for other people. We should uh, probably have a break from this now, shouldn't we? Uh, Let everyone grab a cuppa or do whatever they do. Run a bit faster on their jog if you're listening while you're jogging. Frankly, let's be clear, having listened to this section, you'll now know how important it is to go out for a a jog (laughs) with us in your headphones. (laughs) I wonder at which points they get faster, what we're talking about. Um, Yeah, just a reminder as well, if you want to send in any questions to us, because we will be answering some more at the end of this podcast. It's rest is money at gmail.com. Right, let's have a break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. So, time to talk about oil, Robert, which is uh, big news in lots of ways at the minute, isn't it? It is. You know, I've been one of those people who sort of persuaded myself that the oil industry was dying a slow death as a result of government's commitments around the world to phase out the use of oil and gas. I was rather struck an enormous deal in the oil industry, Chevron acquiring Hess for more than $50 billion. Talk us through the sort of numbers and the significance of that. Yeah, I mean, this is a big deal, isn't it? And I guess these big deals, quite a few big deals happening in the oil industry at the minute, thanks partly to how much money is sloshing around from the high oil price off the back of the Russian-Ukraine war. And one of the big ones, as you say, is Chevron buying a company called Hess for $53 billion. As you say, an important story, not just because of the money involved, but it shows that big energy producers are betting on fossil fuels still being the main energy provider worth lots of of money. So Chevron is the second biggest international oil company that's not government owned. It's valued at more than $300 billion. Hess, a much smaller, it's a family owned business founded in 1933 by a guy called Leon Hess, who was delivering fuel, delivering oil, 
from a, a lorry when he was 19. And it's his son, John Hess, who has led the company since the 90s. And the, the family remains its biggest shareholder. They've, I think they've got about a tenth of the stock. And so now this company is becoming part of Chevron. It's an all stock deal, which means Hess will get shares in Chevron rather than cash. But the reason why Chevron want it is because it will increase their oil output by about 10%. So currently they produce about 3 million barrels of oil a day, Chevron do, and this will increase that and give them access to a really important market for oil, which is Guyana in, in South America, which is a site that's been, I think you'd say it's fair to say it's a, a recent discovery. It's in the last decade of it being somewhere with a lot of oil. So it's rich in oil. Chevron get access to this through Hess. That's why it's important for them. I mean, it seems to me the reason it's particularly striking is because there are very few mergers and acquisitions deals at the moment across the economy as a whole. If you talk to investment bankers, they moan, we might come back to this later, that their bonuses are under pressure. Who are them? (laughs) (laughs) Because companies are not feeling in general confident enough to buy other companies. But oil and gas is the exception. Mm. You know, we saw Exxon recently also buy an enormous business. I think they paid more than $60 billion for a company called Pioneer Natural Resources just a few weeks ago. And that is a business that is in the sort of shale sector. But again, it's oil and gas. Mm. So we've seen these two mega deals at a time when takeovers are not happening because of all the sort of economic uncertainties out there, future interest rates, are we in recession, you know, geopolitical risks stemming from Ukraine and from the Middle East. And, you know, the thing that therefore sort of struck me is why is it at a time when oil and gas companies' bosses ought to be depressed because basically they should be being put out of business by the path to net zero. Why are they feeling so confident? Why do they want to do these mega deals? Mm -hmm. And you probably noticed, as I did, that the boss of Chevron said something that many will find very depressing. He says, you know, we are much further away from reaching what they call peak oil, which is the moment when use of oil reaches its maximum. That's further away than the world thinks. The International Energy Agency, which is the authority on this, again repeated that it believes, this was just earlier this week, that it thinks we're going to reach peak oil within the next few years, by the end of the decade. Chevron disagrees. Yeah. They think they think we're going to be continuing to want more and more oil and gas for much longer than that. Um which is pretty depressing, some would say. Yeah, and I think one of the kind of environmental activist shareholders of Chevron put it quite well when he said, basically, Chevron are betting on the failure of the Paris Climate Agreement, which obviously, you know, requires fossil fuel usage to rapidly decline this decade. And it's a good point. You know, we've seen ourselves in this country as roll back from a lot of the plans we had for getting us to net zero. When the government approved the Rosebank oil field in the North Sea, very controversially, which includes, frankly, a very big implicit subsidy from the British government to, you know, the Norwegian controller. So, you know, both in terms of actions of governments are now fighting Mm -hmm. against the words that they use when they say they're committed to net zero. And Chevron and and Exxon are looking at the actions of governments and saying, actually, you know, there's going to be a big market for oil and gas for much longer 
than you know many have been expecting. So I've got a question for you, Robert, then. So we're seeing yeah. Chevron and Exxon do these big deals, which keeps them in the oil and gas area. What about BP and Total Energies, who seem to, and you know, I think it was the first episode when we were talking about the boss of BP having to leave because he'd had you know various things going on with shenanigans with people at work. But we were talking then about how they were investing more heavily in renewables. That might change, but why do you think there's these two different views? So BP, you know, conspicuously and famously, did make a commitment to move more rapidly than other oil and gas giants towards replacing oil and gas with renewable sources of energy. Um, But at the end of last year, it made an announcement that it was going to slow down that movement towards renewables. And what happened was very striking, which is BP's share price rose very significantly. And what it tells you is that there is this tension between the behavior that investors reward, and in this case, investors were rewarding BP for slowing down the path to net zero, right? And that fights not only with the words of climate change campaigners, but investors, many investors say that they are absolutely committed to battling climate change. And, you know, there are investors, for example, who will vote in shareholder meetings against companies that are not moving fast enough to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And yet markets reward bad behavior. And that is striking Mm. and depressing. And I think, you know, what it shows you is that it is naive of governments to leave the path to net zero so much in the hands of essentially the markets. And one of the things that they ought to be doing is you know, increasing the price of carbon through taxation, through restrictions on the amount of carbon that individual companies can use. Yes, there are schemes all over the world that do try to put more of a price on carbon dioxide emissions so that it reflects more the damage that it's doing to the environment, but not enough. Yeah. It, you know, they are not doing enough to capture the long-term damage that CO2 emissions do to the environment in the price that we all pay for petrol and uh, gas now. Yeah. Petrol and gas is still underpriced relative to the harm it does. And that's why Chevron thinks it's an amazingly great idea to buy Hess for more than $50 billion, because it's basically saying that this stuff is still cheap. Yeah. The, um, one of the, you know, when the International Energy Agency were talking about this, you mentioned about them saying they think oil demand is going to reach its peak in the next decade. They were talking about the popularity of uh, electric cars, weren't they? And saying that, you know, the growing popularity of electric cars and the cooling, of course, of, of China's economy will be part of this. And uh, did you see that's this story this week about Toyota, by the way, bringing out yeah, amazing. a car that's going to be able to travel for a range of 745 miles on a single 10 minute charge. Yes, these solid state batteries yeah. that they're developing, which I think, but unfortunately, these batteries are not going to come in until 2027. But it was, as you say, what was really interesting about the IEA prediction, which still thinks that we will reach, as you say, peak oil earlier than Chevron thinks we're going to reach peak oil. But it was all about, almost all of it was about the incredible speed with which 
China is moving over to electric mm. vehicles, not only in terms of the manufacture, but the use of electric vehicles within China. And some would say this puts us to shame. Yeah. You know, you had a prime minister recently who, who, who delayed by five years the abolition of the internal combustion engine, petrol and diesel engines in the sale of new cars. I mean, the IEA is saying because of the incredible investment that China has put into the manufacture of electric vehicles, and they are, they're going to dominate that industry. But but also, you know, Chinese consumers are buying these things, you know, and they're putting in place the infrastructure so that they become, you know, much easier to use. So it, it is fascinating. I mean, that you know, the level of the rate of increase of their CO2 emissions in other respects due to their industry, you know, it is still rising. But this role of, it, of electric vehicles in reducing uh, CO2 emissions is really striking. Mm. I do have to um, say, though, like the oil industry, you know, it's a big part of providing jobs for people in Teesside and obviously a lot of people in Scotland and a lot of the lads who I grew up with all ended up working mm. on the rigs and you wonder about how it affects jobs and things. But it is, but you've captured there, you know, that tension between the impact of, again, a big industrial change, move to net zero on important groups of workers. Aberdeen, absolutely, you know, you yeah. and I have been to Aberdeen many times. You know, it, it, there is, it's astonishing when you go to Aberdeen, it's dependence on the North Sea industry. You know, these are really proud group of highly skilled people, yeah. are, you know, going out on helicopters to these rigs is an amazing experience. And, you know, every time there's an oil recession, yes. that, you know, that economy really suffers. So if you're telling those people all of that business is, is going, you're delivering a really painful message to those people that, you know, their jobs are no longer going to be valuable. And what are they going to do? We talked about this earlier in terms of the context of AI. You have to help people yeah. when, they, when their jobs are under threat. You have to help them to, to get new skills and new jobs. Yeah, I guess they, they would argue there's a, the, you know, the move to renewables where there'd be lots of transferable skills. Just to prove my point about how many people I went to school with who ended up working on the rigs. Yeah. When I went out to one of the rigs, the helicopter landed. They're, they're quite intense when you're going out to a rig on a helicopter, you know, with what you're wearing. You feel like you're going to throw up on yourself. Yeah. Anyway, the door opened off the rig and uh, this lad just went to me and I could barely see him because of all the safety gear I had on. He just went, now then, funny bones. And that was my nickname at school. And that was how I was welcomed <laughs> to the oil rig. <laughs> now then, funny bones. I was like, no way. All right. <laughs> it was really funny seeing a lad I went to school with on the rig. Yeah, I got, I got to tell you, in Crouch Head, North London, with the comprehensive I went to, I don't think many people went from there to the rig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's why it's good. We have different perspectives on things. Right. Shall we have a look at some of the uh, questions we've been sent in then? Shall we start with the banker's bonuses one? Because that's been in the news this week, hasn't it? So Sean Moore, we would say Moore where I'm from. So I'm always hesitant when I say someone with that. I'm sure. <laughs> He, he, if he's from the south, he's Sean Moore, probably. If he's right. from the north, he's probably Sean Moore. Either way, okay. Sean says, what do you think about the Bank of England abolishing the cap on bankers' bonuses? Just to remind everyone, this is the cap that's been lifted from the 31st of October. Uh, it was a cap that was brought in by the EU after the 2008 financial crisis, which limited bonuses to two times an employee's annual salary. And then last year, Kwasi Kwarteng in his mini budget said it was being axed. So, Robert, what, what do you think in terms of what it means? In order for it to be axed, 
it requires the Bank of England's prudential regulatory authority to make a decision about what the impact will be, whether it'll sort of increase the risks of the banking system or be good for the banking system. They've decided that allowing banks to pay whatever level of bonuses they see fit is a good thing for banks. Now, this is quite complicated. Obviously, there's a bit of politics around this. This is They can do this because of the new Brexit freedoms, the freedoms you have when you leave the EU. Some would say rewarding bankers is a very odd and eccentric use of that freedom. The fundamental question is this one. The reason the cap was put in place by the European Union initially was because there was a view that if pay was massively linked to the individual revenue performance of a banker, it would encourage bankers to take stupid risks in the short term to generate revenues that then resulted in bonuses being paid, but you wouldn't know till years later whether the deals that they'd done were so risky that they would cause damage to the institution. Now, the counter-argument against putting in that cap was it meant that banks had to pay bankers much more in fixed salaries, and that was expensive. And it also simply meant that it wasn't very efficient because you ended up paying very large sums of money to people who might not be generating useful revenue. I mean, my own view, as somebody who's been sort of steeped in this for years, is in the end, the more important issue is making sure that whatever you pay bankers, if they do risky deals that then end up damaging the bank and indeed the economy, there should be a mechanism for getting the money back from those bankers, yeah. right? Whether it's fixed pay or bonuses. And so a lot of it is to do with, you know, how much you can lock the money up for years until you're absolutely confident that the deals that they've done are the right deals. And the thing that I would be disturbed about, and I suspect will happen now, is that quite a lot of bonuses will be paid out to bankers and the banks will never have the ability to get the money back, you know, if the deals go wrong. And that seems to me to be quite a big issue. Yeah. Um, and the other problem for banks in the short term is, and I th- you know, this is something that's quite amusing, is, you know, at the moment, they've got a lot of bankers on huge fixed salaries. It's cheaper and more efficient for bank bosses to pay people in bonuses because they can put those up and down. You know, are they going to be able now uh, to say to yeah. their employees, right, we want to halve your fixed salary. And so I think there's going to be some quite tense negotiations within Uh, banks over the coming weeks. It'd be lovely to be a fly on the wall of those chats. Right. Should we take another question then? So there's a question from Amelia Peterson, and she's been looking, I'm assuming, at the latest data from you know what's called purchasing managers and she's asking on the basis of that data is the uk now in a recession what do you think steph yeah i mean technically we're not because the definition of a recession is two quarters of of negative growth and just to remind everyone the way they work this out is the ons looks at everything that we're producing and doing in the economy and works out whether that's more or less than the previous quarter if you get a negative figure and you get two quarters of negative figures, then that is a technical recession. But the figures are constantly being updated and changed. And we might actually look back in years to come and find out we were in recession the 
whole time once we know more about everything that's uh, gone on. But yeah, it does feel like to a lot of people we, we are in a recession because people are seeing their, their living standards fall. I know the pay figures are, have been very, very good, but that might not equate to people at home feeling like they have any more disposable yeah. income. And so, yeah, as you say, the PMI figures. Tell us about the importance of these because there'll be some people listening who have no idea what they are. So the PMI figures are surveys that are carried out every month of what's happening within individual businesses. And if you get a score on the PMI of less than 50 for the aggregate of things like what's happening in service industries, what's happening in, in manufacturing, what's happening to orders. Normally, that means the economy is shrinking, which is another way of saying we're in a recession. Mm-hmm. And the data that was out yesterday showed that both the UK and indeed uh, the European Union were in mild recession. Not a severe recession, but you know, I think most people's experiences, there's not a lot of growth. We were bumping along and that's what the data seems to show. Yeah. And especially our economy is mainly built on services, isn't it? So the kind of finance, retail and entertainment is about 80% of our economy. So these figures really matter. Right. Should I ask you another question then? Yeah, please. A question here from Freddie Harris. The basis of it being, what measures would you back to improve the UK IPO market? So this is a really important question. And we've, we've talked about the significance of the fact that fewer and fewer big companies seem to be choosing the UK to list their shares. And, you know, that has knock-ons because where you list your shares is often where you site your head office and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, high value jobs go to places that have thriving stock markets, you know, famously, notoriously, arm, um, you know, the chip maker, British chip maker listed in America. And so there is a, there's a major problem in London at the moment that really exciting companies do not appear to be choosing the London Stock Exchange to list. And, you know, there are lots of reasons for that. One of the ones that we've talked about is the fact that British investors are investing less and less in British companies over a 20-year period. And so the most important thing that I think should be done is governments need to encourage both pension funds and actually ordinary investors to put more of their money into British companies. And that would definitely have a knock-on effect on the attitude of companies Mm -hmm. that can list anywhere in the world in terms of listing on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, I was just about to say that in terms of encouraging more of us to invest in British companies. There was talk, wasn't there, of the the Chancellor looking at reforming ISAs and the ISA system so that there could be an additional ISA allowance for investing in UK companies. And that's something we're expecting to hear about soon, aren't we? Yeah, which is an interesting idea, I have to say. The other thing, though, that's plainly gone wrong is that the way that bankers and sponsors of companies interact with the London Stock Exchange is plainly not great. I mean, too many companies that list on the Stock Exchange do badly. I mean, there was one the other day. So there's a company called Cab Payments, which is in the fintech sector, really important financial technology industry. They listed three months ago, and their shares have fallen 72% since they listed on the London Stock Exchange. Who has got that so badly wrong then? That is really bad pricing, right? And the problem is, if you go to a stock exchange and you buy shares and the shares then plunge in value, you think to yourself, oh, 
I'm not sure that the processes here are working terribly well. Maybe I'll look at shares listed in America where there doesn't appear to be this mismatch so much between the price that you have to pay at flotation and then what happens to the shares afterwards. If cab payments was unique, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But, you know, you'll remember Deliveroo, for example, was another massive disappointment when it floated on the London Stock Exchange. And there have been a number of important companies listed in London that have done really badly after flotation. So I think we've covered a fascinating and, and brilliant range to, to, today. What, you, what, what are you off to do now? Last week when I said this, I was off to interview Donny Osman. This week it's Daniel O'Donnell. So I'm going for all the classics to say in terms of the <laughs> yeah. music genre. Yeah, and I, actually mine is, I don't know, slightly different. I've got to obviously now get my head into the nightmare of what's going on in the Middle East. There'll yes. be lots of ser- serious interviews around that on my show tonight. Yeah, well, good luck with that. And I've got to remind people that bust. Oh, the, your the, book. You know, get your book plug in, love. <laughs> you've got to get the book plug in available in all good bookshops from Thursday morning. And all bad ones. And all bad ones. Any bookshop. <laughs> Brilliant. Have a lovely week. We'll chat again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.